Good morning, everyone. Uh, today's Friday. It is our fourth day of the Spring Insight Retreat with Sayadaw Indika. And we'll begin as we have the prior days reciting the refuges and precepts together. You have your sheet. And rather than call and response, we can do it all together. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Honor to the Blessed One, the Exalted One, the Fully Enlightened One. Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dhammam Saranam Gachami, Sangam Saranam Gachami, Dutiyam Pi Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dutiyami Dhamma Saranam Gachami Dutiyami Sangam Saranam Gachami Satyami Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatyami Dhamma Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Vanatipata Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Abramacharya Bhuramani Sika Padam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity. Musawada Bhuramani Sika Padam Samadhyami. Sura Sura Meraya Majapamadatama Viramani Sika Padam Samadhyami
I've always had a a real fondness, even a joy, uh, for sitting retreat, and I I don't have a very good way yet, after several years of teaching, of explaining exactly how that came about for me and exactly why that has sustained itself. I think on a basic level there's a part of me that really loves quiet and a sense of solitude. I feel uh, in a way closer to myself. And I've, I've, you know, essentially framed or built a life around retreat. I learned in my late 20s that if I didn't prioritize retreat, it might not happen because the calendar would get filled up. Um, And so every fall I would look at the year ahead and I would figure out where I might want to practice and who I might want to sit retreat with and I would schedule two or three or four retreats on the, kind of spread them out on the calendar. And there was a way in which that held me. There was a way in which it was so congruent and consistent enough with my values that what, I, I had this feeling that whatever else happened would be okay. Like, I'm doing my practice. I don't know the outcome of that. The uncertainty of my life is palpable, and yet what else can I do? You know, I'm putting all this effort into into practice. And, you know, we hear some of the translations of the suttas describing the, the practice as a protection, you know, the greatest protection. And so we might ask, well, against what? You know, we live in a crazy world. What good is hiding out in the woods in Newburyport gonna gonna do? Is it gonna make a difference for those of us who are are motivated externally toward critical causes? Um, you know, and a traditional answer is that it will protect us from everything, in a sense, and that doesn't mean that we gain any significant control over external affairs. It it doesn't mean that we immediately disrupt social inequity or but we do over time gain the capacity to make space uh, for our life and for the world within ourselves and in some way the the world becomes fundamentally more hospitable and there's a greater sense of ease within ourselves in meeting that world and moving through our life. And for me, I've never learned quite as well how to do that through any other activity in a way that's greater than what happened and what happens for me on retreat. And yet what I find really interesting is that retreat is usually pretty hard. That's the part of myself that I have a harder time understanding and conveying that I would continue to appreciate, look forward to, protect, make sure on my schedule is something that's pretty hard. (laughs) 
Um, and yet I do it because in small incremental ways it does it does change something. And and over time the 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 trust in that Dharma, the trust in the practice grows. And I think also trust in myself, you know, that the that the that the the increasing trust which lends itself to a commitment of time and energy and space in one's life uh, does begin to translate as a trust in oneself. There's a sense of uh, being able to hold life with an increasing equanimity and um, capacity, basically. But I'm not on retreat in the same way that you are on retreat right now. And I'm also uh, drawing upon my cognitive mind and I'm reflecting and uh, sharing views and concepts that uh, match my experience and intend to convey some kind of possibility. But I'm not having the experiences that you're having in your own mind and body. and I'm aware always sitting in the front of the room of that disconnect that, that won't go away. Being aware of it doesn't change it. So I don't know exactly what it's like for you. I imagine the difficulty I speak of is in there in ways. And I imagine also there are opportunities to contact the inherent well-being that is available to us, to contact kindness, friendliness, benevolence, to contact clear seeing, insight, or wisdom. To support the energy, the sustained energy that's required to stay with these long days of practice in the inevitable changes that just keep happening and happening and happening. Um, I find it useful to sometimes engage three reflections either at the beginning of a sitting meditation period or maybe maybe standing for two or three minutes at the beginning of a period of walking meditation or first thing in the morning when you wake up or lying in bed before you go to sleep at night. And one of those reflections is to consider how precious it is to have the opportunity to hear the Dharma and to practice in this way. This is such a rare episode in our life. I mean, just think, in the past 365 days, How many days have been committed to contacting this inherent well-being that is said to be possible? It's such a remarkable opportunity, so so rare. Uh, Even when our appreciation in the Dharma is convincing, bold, persistent uh, to, to do it, 
to make the commitment to put things aside and to have the resources, uh, to find the resources, to be connected enough to a sangha or a teacher that you are aware that the event is happening and you feel safe enough and comfortable enough to uh, spend your time with those folks, unknowing really what will happen. That others in your life to some extent support you, that could be family, it could be uh, colleagues at work. There are situations in people to whom you're not available, so that you can be fully available to yourself and to the Dhamma and to the unfolding of kindness and wisdom. And so there's this remarkable commitment to a virtuous life, which is, for many of us, highlighted on retreat. It's so, it's so visceral. What else are we doing? We are strengthening our conviction that those wholesome possibilities are to be real in our lifetime. In order to do this, in the Buddhist cosmology, we have to be born into a human life. There is no other being, it is said, who has this capacity to both experience the pain of life but to engage it in a way that's experiential and reflective and transform it into something different. We are the beings that have the capacity for wisdom that understands how suffering is created and so we can change that. So there's this precious human birth that we hear about in the Dhamma. And there's a story, which I'm sure many of you have heard, and maybe many, many times, of the turtle in the ocean swimming in all the water in the world who rears their head to the surface of the water once in a hundred-year period of time and puts their head through this small ring that's floating on the surface of the water. There's one ring in one turtle who is going to bring their head to the surface of the water one time in a hundred year period and they put their head through that ring and this story is to convey the likelihood that you will be born that we will be born into a human mind and body and have this opportunity to hear the Dharma And the third reflection is the recognition, the reflection on karma, the basic law that all actions have a result. That's it, all actions have a result. And so your decision to be here, to follow through with that intention or the intentions that were true for you in considering coming here, that has its own benefit. And while you're here, every moment of mindfulness, every single moment, uproots the causes and conditions for dukkha. Every single moment. Even if you've 
had only two of those since lunch yesterday, you have successfully uprooted the causes and conditions for dukkha twice. And we, we now know from good research that that is rewiring our brain. In, in our culture, we tend to get caught up on numbers, uh, quantity. How many of those moments have you had? Right? I bet that woman back there in the corner had eight more of those moments than me yesterday. And she's walking slower than I am, so she must have more concentration. Well, maybe she's faking it like you were the day before. <laughs> So the mind goes on all these trips and we start to see the self. We start to see the I, the man, the woman, the person, the son, the daughter, the teacher, the student, the husband, the wife, with all of the concepts and constructs that are in place to define ourselves, define the, define the world around us, and ultimately divide us or separate it from it and everyone else. Because that's the result of there being a me or an I. Now there's a whole bunch of others. And this is one way of talking about the suffering of the world, is that we don't ultimately see our universality, our, our many ways of connecting. So the instructions are actually to put the scorecard down and just be with the experience you're having with the fullness of your capacity and to see where that goes. I, I tend to try to avoid um, language that's ambiguous or I would say, I hesitate to say, but I will. I try to avoid language that's new agey, but um, this is a mystery. We don't know what will happen on retreat. We don't know what will happen in our next three days together. We don't know what will happen in between the end of this talk and dinner. We don't know what will happen in between now and the end of the talk. And there's freedom in that. If the learning can bring you to a place where that's okay, you're already more free. And yet the instructions are to enter into that space of unknowing with a lot of intentionality and effort toward what's arising now. The sound of a bird, the sound of my voice, the emotional reaction to something that I say, let it go, now it's in the past, now what? Heat, the body's warm, the body's cold whatever it is, right? And just letting yourself be in relationship to the unchanging, to the, to the constantly changing, uncontrollable mystery that is our life. In the 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 subtlety of the 
dharma is that that's the only way we can gain any control. Right, and it's it's that that control, and we have to use that word lightly. I put it in in quotes. Is is not the conventional control where finally we understand where we came from, we understand where we're going. External things are relatively orderly. People are doing what we want them to do. Okay, now this is. I have a sense of finally. Have a sense of control. There's a sense of order. But rather, we give something up, which is a sense of control, and there's a orderliness that starts to happen. Things are fine. Things are fine. And at the beginning, at the very beginning of the the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutra on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the the Buddha makes a, a big claim, a very, very big claim. And I want to read the, the short introduction to the sutta to you uh, for review, for those of you uh, who have heard it and uh, for anyone who hasn't heard it yet. It is written, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method for the realization of nirvana. A different translation of the same op- opening. There is a one going path for the purification of the actions of beings, for removing worry and sorrow for being without vexations, for attaining great knowledge and wisdom, for accomplishing the realization of nirvana. We know that uh, Siddhartha Gautama, when he was uh, probably about 30 years old, he was unsatisfied with his progress on the path, which he had given some significant devotion to, I I, I think, and had studied with many teachers, uh, arguably some of the greatest teachers. And as the story goes, he he was a quick learner and was able to grasp the techniques. He was able to articulate some understanding and it wasn't too long before some of his teachers asked him to teach. And probably some enticing with good food and a nice place to stay and whatever else would have been enticing at that time and whatever privileges might come uh, with a teaching position in those days. And he said, I'll pass. Uh, thank you. And I'd rather... I'd rather practice. He said, I'd rather practice. And if we stitch a lot of the different stories together, we might be left thinking that he knew he wasn't free in the language that has uh, come from the legacy that he left us. He knew he wasn't free. 
So my sense of this is that when he was practicing what would have been common yogic disciplines at the time, probably pranayama, yogic, there's evidence of some training in yogic breathing and uh, probably some movement and, and whatever would have resembled meditation at that time. But my sense is that he probably got really good at developing concentration and was having the stability of mind that we attribute to concentration Probably uh, bliss and, and sukha, like very, very uplifted, bright, uh, happy mind states marked by any variation of well-being. Um, and also, we might assume that he recognized that those mind states were not permanent, right? Maybe he entered into a long period of practice for six days or six weeks or six hours and would contact all of these precious states of mind, uh, states of mind we refer to now uh, as virtuous, as healthy, as skillful. And maybe he was meeting with his teacher a day later, two hours later, and realized that he had back pain, realized that he was worried about the future. Maybe he was grieving over the fact that uh, he left his wife and his child in the middle of the night and ran off to, a, to what ended up being a six-year period of uh, isolated meditation. So we don't know, uh, but he wasn't free. And so essentially what he said to his teachers is, I need to do more practice. And he had to also, in doing that, he had to start to divert away from those practices and teachings he had learned and adapt them. And he developed a system of practice that we now call Buddhism or Buddha Dharma and all the teachings contained within it. And before he did that, of course, he got to a point where my sense is he felt like he was close to something and he made a resolute commitment to sit and not move until he was finished, until uh, the work had been done. And that's the story of his awakening. He woke up many, many hours later and saw the nature of suffering and what needed to be done to alleviate that and make space for ultimately what remains for most of us an unfathomable degree of well-being. And so it is said that Siddhartha Gautama woke up. So he became the Buddha, the awakened one. When I met Saida Uindaka for the first time, uh, I was scared to go on retreat. I had made a commitment to sit the traditional rains retreat, which is a three-month silent uh, intensive retreat and it was my first time in Burma too and I just had no idea what I was getting into <laughs> um, and and before I left actually it was one there has been a couple retreats for me that I signed up for and you know a week or two before I'm ready to leave there like nothing in me wants to go on retreat now with the exception of one of those retreats it was a winter Zen retreat at Upaya uh, I've actually always gone anyway, and that's 
proven to be a really good practice for me. So often I'm leaving to go on retreat with a lot of resistance, a lot of things on my to-do list not crossed off. Uh, <clears throat> and this was one of them, and so it was really quite hard to leave, to leave home for that long with that kind of resistance and find my way to Asia. And I even, I was in this nice hotel in, in Yangon where I still, where I still stay uh, when I go. And for Burmese standards, very, very cush and, and really good food and air conditioning in the room. And um, I went down to the desk on the day that I was supposed to leave to take the taxi to the monastery. And I said, is my room available tonight? <laughs> <laughs> and she looked in the book and she said, yeah. I said, why don't you book that to my credit card and I'll leave tomorrow. And I think there was a part of me that didn't know if I'd go to the, you know, like the hotel was, every day was looking, looking better. Um, as I realized how little I knew about what I was signing up for. And I showed up at the monastery the next day, uh, actually in, in quite later too, they were expecting me in the morning. I just kept kind of dragging my feet and when the taxi pulled up in front of the office, they were all waiting for me. Like Mimi was there and a couple of monks and some of the young girls who, who work in the office. And, you know, I didn't understand it at the time because I didn't know them, you know, really know them as people. But my sense is that they're probably mostly lingering around the office all morning waiting for me. Uh, and Mimi came right up to the car and she said, we thought you were coming yesterday. You know, your food is ready, and it wasn't mealtime, and they had already finished their midday meal. She says, your food is ready, and there's tea, and, and that was the, the beginning of this remarkable level of, of connection and care and output of energy that, that we continue to receive from, from the Burmese uh, people, particularly those that uh, are part of the Sayadaw Indaka family. <clears throat> And I had my meal and I settled into my room and um, at some point later on Mimi came by and, and she said, uh, Sayada will meet you at, I forget what time it was, you know, 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock at his kuti to show me where his kuti was. And I went and I stood outside and uh, at a certain point she came out and she said, you can come in now. And I came in and he asked me a few questions, which I forget, and then he asked me how long I would be there. And I said, I'm gonna, I plan to be here about three months. There's this window in December where I might travel home, and I'll let you know closer, closer to the time. And, you know, he basically said, great. He said, that's a, that's a good period of practice. And, and then he gave his teachings. And, you know, his teachings were, were very short, and they were very simple. And he said, basically, the Buddha taught awakening and there's a way to do that and he gave me a set of instructions and he sent me out and the teaching was basically waking up as possible that's the curriculum <laughs> and I had never heard that in the United States I mean I got it like awakening is this Thing, but it's it's shrouded in ambiguity and mystery, and and there's even a, a an, an unwritten code of ethics amongst many teachers, the generation before me and mine, that you don't really talk about it very much. And of course, that comes 
there's a variety of reasons for that, one of which is probably uh, for all intents and purposes a precept that monastics take not to talk about high achievement, not to make up achievements that weren't had. Of course, if you did that, you could probably get better food or land at a better monastery and get a better bed or something or whatever it was. And, and at some point, the Buddha had to make a, you know, like, stop doing that. You know, you don't even meditate. You know? <laughs> you know? All you do is hang out on the corner and smoke cigarettes. You know? So, <clears throat> um, so teachers are, teachers are very careful. Uh, and, there's, and there's some good reason for being careful about this topic. But it was really the first time Burma slapped me in the face. You know, I, I walked out of his crew. He said, wow, really? It's just that ordinary? You know, just on, on day one at a retreat, the teacher shows up and says, I teach awakening. This is what you need to do. This is what we're doing. Glad you're here. Three months, great. So with certain people who practice a lot and who are with people who practice a lot, the farther reaches of this practice become much less philosophical and interestingly engaging at an intellectual level. They become something felt that we're getting closer to and maybe drop into sometimes. And from that place, uh, there's a kind of communication about possibility that has an ordinary or mundane quality to it. A lot of the skeptical doubt, which is normal, to be expected, even healthy, starts to wane. And there's just this path from here to there. Um, and so there's a, there's, it's easy to encourage, it's easy to share the teachings, it's easy to ask someone to walk an extra 20 minutes, get up a little earlier. It's, it becomes one of the most natural things to do, right? And, and, and we, we get that from, we get that from Sayadaw. He said in one of his talks here, he said, you will definitely experience peace and happiness for sure. <laughs> you know, and again, and again, it was one of those occasions where, you know, you know Burma or the, 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 the clarity and the faith that, that comes out of a long-standing devotional tradition to the practice. It was, it was, the, it was, it was another occasion where it just really slapped me in the... the, the, the the clarity and the conviction just woke me up. I said, wow. You know, my mind was able to hear it in that moment the other day. You know, for sure. And he doesn't say it the way... He, there's, you don't have that inflection with the exclamation point at the end. He's just like, you'll experience happiness and peace for sure. And <laughs> you need to focus on your breath to begin. It's just like, you know, just do that. Just do that. 
So the, the, the Buddha's instructions in the Satipatthana Sutra in these examples suggest a radical optimism. Um, a radical optimism. And points out that what challenges us can be understood and overcome. So that instead of looking for external happiness, we, become to re- we come to rely more and more on a fundamentally more stable form of interior happiness and well-being. You know, one of the, the driving questions behind this tradition is what, when I do it, causes happiness and well-being? In the inverse, what if when I do it, what when I do it, causes dukkha and distress, suffering and distress? So if there's, if there's one question, that, or a set of questions, those are them. What do, you, what, do you, what do we mean by insight? The answer to those questions is one way of responding to that. What do you mean by insight? The answer to the questions. What, when I do it, causes happiness and well-being? Then do that. What, when I do it, causes suffering and discontent? When you know the answer, don't do that. That's the Dharma. In a sense, uh, not translating literally, but in a sense, uh, that's the spirit of right view and right mindfulness and right intention. So what is conveyed in this optimism? What is conveyed in this optimism of the Satipatthana instructions and that we can feel often in teachers who have a lot of faith? Well, clearly there's a significant understanding that we come to along the path. And how can we think about this? Well, On the one hand, there's the alleviation of dukkha. So something goes away. Something goes away. Okay. And there's the presence of, there's the attainment of wisdom and knowledge that is referred to as great. This is ultimately the realization of nirvana or nibbana in the Pali. So something is attained. So something goes away and something is attained or gained. Okay, so in a sense, very simple. And, and we can feel that experientially and, and, and again, retreat. Uh, retreat is a place to contact these realities, to have more of a felt sense. You know, the, the Dharma talk, it's both beneficial and a total distraction to be doing this, right? And there's a way in which, yes, something sometimes lands, and there's an instructional advice in there that helps us practice, 
or something lands that wakes the heart and mind up and it further motivates so we can practice. But the understanding comes from practice, the felt sense of something. And you might feel something going away as the mind quiets and you become more secluded from the hindrances, for example. And you might feel the body growing more tranquil, lighter, literally life feeling a little lighter. Right? You might notice the, 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 your perception is a little bit clearer. Maybe even the visual field brighter. And maybe you'll notice that there's a different kind of mood. Like there's, a, there's, a, there's a particular quality of happiness or joy, or there's, there's just a basic sense of whol- a wholesomeness, a wholesome. Like when the shame and the guilt and the remorse fades away, there's just a wholesome sense of I'm well, I'm good enough, all is well. So it's like you just sort of you can abide in that. And then something will happen and that well-being will go away. And maybe there's more dukkha. And so there's so many opportunities to see this impermanent nature of all things, which is at the heart of liberating insight. Things are fundamentally changing all the time. You don't need to have any experience other than the ones you're having to get really close to the deepest insights. And if things are always changing, who are you? How can you be something that doesn't last? And of course, in the failure or inability to correlate these two teachings, these two of the three characteristics, we see the third characteristic, dukkha. There it is. I'm holding on to that which is changing or leaving. I'm trying to create something else according to my timeline. And you feel yourself bumping up against nature. Maybe the moment for your well-being or freedom is not ready for you yet. Okay. Dwelling in this pain of the body, noting it, noting it. So these two aspects, something going away and something being attained, are part of a, a, a part of a mutual unfolding. They work together. The attainment of insight helps us avoid the conditions of dukkha. And in the absence of dukkha, the mind is naturally prone to further insight. And Sayada is walking us through a map of practice uh, given in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, people wrestle with this set of teachings because it seems like in certain places 
some foundations overlap and, and people get confused, for ex particularly uh, between the third and fourth foundation. Well, is this third foundation? Is this fourth foundation? Uh, doesn't seem so linear. And the teacher's talking about body, but I'm really, I'm thinking a lot about the future. What, where am I supposed to put my attention? So I'd like to spend the rest of uh, my time answering some of those questions and, and trying to bring together the the philosophy, the possibility with the concrete. How do we how do we do this? Reviewing some of the, if not all of the techniques that Saida has shared so far. Some argue that the Satipatthana Sutta is like the greatest hits that the that the maybe the maybe the Buddha never gave us a Satipatthana Sutta, but someone later took really critical teachings and put them together. In the you know, I, I'm not vouching for that. I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but the it wouldn't matter if I was because the Buddhist scholars disagree and argue, and they all that person has the right way, but this person also has the right way, and they don't match up. And uh, so I like to just share that that's a possibility, um, both that. It's an original teaching or a compilation. Uh, I don't think it matters. Now, what's remarkable about the map given to us in the Satipatthana Sutta is uh, it's incredibly simple. It has a, it's, it's basic in a sense. And it covers the entirety of human experience while pointing out how to be free. And the site dog gave us an overview, and then yesterday he talked about the second foundation uh, a little bit more detail. The day before he talked about the first foundation with a little bit more detail. And so today I'll, I'll say a few words. I'll emphasize the third foundation. As a review, there are four foundations or categories, four categories. <laughs> or four pastures, and these describe different kinds of mental and physical phenomena that occur and can be known. To say they're known is to say they are a gateway to understanding, to insight. They're also sometimes referred to as establishments, four establishments of mindfulness. And I like that language because it suggests that they are four ways that we establish mindfulness. I find that helpful. These are just four, there's four options. Sometimes you have the option to practice at any of those four levels, but sometimes you don't have that option and you practice at the place you are. If you're overwhelmed by sensation in the body, as Sayadaw says, he says, whatever's most noticeable or whatever's most prevalent, right? Um, I sometimes say, whatever's at the forefront of awareness, you just take that as the object of your meditation. So the first foundation is, is body, right? And mostly we're referring to the breath and sensation, okay? The first 
foundation of mindfulness is, is more involved than that. It includes uh, contemplation on the body and various stages of decay, so forth and so on. Uh, but for our intents and purposes here, it means to be aware of the body, to be mindful of sensation and breath. Okay, so we typically start there. And then in the second foundation, Vedana, we become aware of feeling tones. This is what Sayadaw was emphasizing yesterday, and he, he chose to talk yesterday a little bit more about unpleasant uh, sensation in the body, which is appropriate because while maybe not everybody, most of us uh, are experiencing unpleasant sensation in the body. It could be pain from an old injury or a surgery, or it could be, it could be restlessness. Uh, the body can, like when the body feels like you want to run out of the room and you know, that, like that story about the teacher forgetting to ring the bell. You know? <laughs> and then you sneak a look at your watch and you realize, actually the teacher's fine, you've only been sitting for 12 minutes. <laughs> you know, and, um, so I think it's really important to talk quite a bit about the many ways that we can experience unpleasant to normalize those experiences. We're not going to change those. And that's, that's, that's critical in terms of our understanding, the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That's it. That's the whole teaching. And, and now we're already halfway through the four foundations. That's what I mean by simple. So the Buddha is saying there is a sense of body, what we call body, it's revealed in the movement of the breath in different sensory phenomena, hot, cold, tension, tight, stabbing, the basic sense of gravity or weightiness of the body. And that if we really pay attention, there's this movement of pleasant and unpleasant and sometimes neutral, sometimes experiences that don't show up on those distinct ends of the spectrum, pleasant and unpleasant, they're sort of somewhere in the middle, you know. You might be observing the body and just have this sense like, this is not really pleasant, but I'm, I'm fine, like there's no, I wouldn't call this pain really. Um, so that's neutral, neither pleasant or, or unpleasant. In this practice, we're not trying to change this. We're not trying to increase the pleasant, decrease the unpleasant. Now, yes, in the longer course of practice, there's the possibility of experiences that are easier to receive than unpleasant. There are experiences that... that really inform our happiness and joy and, and, and really inform our growing understanding that we are fundamentally okay with ourselves. We are fundamentally okay in this lifetime. There are experiences that inform that we will be okay when we die because we have a sense of who or what is dying. We, we, we're starting to develop some uh, real understanding of this anatta, this not-self. So certain fears drop away. Sure, that brings some ease to life. 
But that's not because we've learned how to shift the phenomenal world at the level of Vedana. It does, however, grow out of our ability to really see and relate appropriately to the fact that we can't control pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And that they are like different villages on this long journey that we are on. Like we got on this train of the precious human birth and the conductor hit go and the front car jumped off and we're just on this journey through pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And Saida is saying, observe whichever Vedana is present. Vedana Vipassana. Just know it. Just see it and note it. Unpleasant. 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 Maybe, it sh- maybe you notice it's gone. You can even say gone, gone. Gone. Pleasant. Maybe the mind really relaxed. Pleasant. Pleasant. And then in the third foundation of mindfulness, we become aware of the mind itself. Chitta. Mind. Described in various ways, attitudes of the mind, less formally, flavors of the mind. Is the mind distracted? Is the mind tight? Is the mind spacious, lazy, energized? Thinking. We can be aware of thinking without engaging the thoughts, without trying to understand them more or better, without uh, engaging certain thoughts has us trying to analyze a situation from the past to figure out why it happened or how we could have related differently. Thinking includes thinking about the future, usually closely tied to hope and fear. This is all chitta. I put emotions in there. Some teachers don't. uh, The heart attitude of the mind can be kind of heavy and weighed down. Uh, The far end of that spectrum is depression. And we can feel sort of uplifted and, and lighter. And the far end of that side of the spectrum is... Uh, bliss, sukha, deep, deep contentment, happiness. And so the instructions are to observe what's happening with regard to mental phenomena. And just note it. Heaviness of mood, just like there can be heaviness of the body. Distraction. You might spend a whole morning consumed with sloth and torpor, laziness. And you can open your eyes and practice with your eyes open as a way of working with that. That's a skillful means. You can go for a walk, 
Uh, you can splash cold water on your face. You can uh, meditate standing up instead of sitting down. And that's appropriate. That doesn't have to be avoidance or repression. You can mindfully choose to try those strategies to work with sloth and torpor. And while you're doing that experimenting, you may have to also abide in the sloth and torpor, the laziness. And if you're skillful in that relationship to citta, you might have a lot of equanimity. The mind might be stable and just fine with laziness, just fine. No self-criticism, no grasping toward the afternoon when you normally have a lot of energy. No regret for the two hours lost because you were so tired you could hardly stay with the object of meditation. The mind is totally fine. So the um, I should have done or I should be having that layer has been completely dropped. That frame of mind is not known to equanimity. I should have done or that there's no space for that in equanimity. A simple way of thinking about citta that I borrow from Bhikkhu Analyo is that that category or pasture amounts to wanting, not wanting, and diluted distraction. And I really like it because it correlates well with the second foundation of mindfulness. So this rendering of the teaching says that it basically says, be careful. It's it's a it's a it's like the cliff note version of awakening. It like Analio is saying, all you need to know is that when there's pleasant, wanting mind shows up, wanting to hold it, keep it, make it last longer. When unpleasant vedana shows up, the not wanting mind shows up. And when neither pleasant nor unpleasant, when that when neutral phenomena is playing out at the level of Vedana, there's really nothing to hold our attention. And so the mind just starts to spin. Finally, there's actually no suffering, which I'm guessing everybody wants. And regardless of our individual goals, and we should have individual goals, I'm guessing that one of them is being met, that most of us share, and that's a basic sense of ease and peace, even if it's not a, the bright ease and peace that comes closer to the termination of, and with the termination of dukkha. But nonetheless, there's a little, maybe there's a little bit more ease. So finally, ah. But the mind quickly turns out to boredom. Right? The mind actually doesn't, there's a part of you, like it's worth admitting that there's a part of your mind that doesn't want peace and ease and just fills that empty space with fantasy or planning. It happens to me all the time, all the time. I work really hard on retreat, following the instructions, the mind starts to get more stable, starts to get more concentrated. And, and there's a particular fall-off place for me, um, I don't want to get into the jhanas, but there are the different concentration 
stages that you can learn to track. And there's a particular place pretty early on that path where the body and mind are experiencing a fair amount of well-being. The practice is basically happening all by itself. The sense of me who is doing techniques in order to practice has all fall, fallen away. But practice is happening, which is to say mindfulness is strong, consistent, present. Noting is now on autopilot, thinking, heat, sensing. But the sense of me is not doing it. And there's a remarkable clarity and ease. And after a certain amount of time, and not a long amount of time, there's a, I can feel it before the words even form. And there's a sense of like, and and this is what it is. Okay, what's next? (laughs) And that's the end. Like, if I don't catch that, right? If I don't catch that, you know, I'm going to come back to this. It's not a less than place, but there is a coming back to a more coarse state of mind, right? So this place between the second foundation and the third foundation is where we jump off the wheel of samsara. Remember, we can't change Vedana, don't need to, not a problem. Pleasant is not a problem in and of itself. Unpleasant is not a problem in and of itself. Neutral experience, not a problem in and of themselves. But they happen like that. It's faster than that. I couldn't click faster. Vedana Chitta, just they go together. They basically go together. But the stabilizing of mind and concentration and the knowing quality of mind, mindfulness, start to see a little gap, recognize, we feel a little gap. We're dwelling in pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And we let go. Which is a horrible set of instructions because it doesn't tell us how to do anything. Yoga teachers say it all the time, just let go. <laughs> Letting go means not adding anything to the experience you're having. And when you do that, you can just dwell in Vedana and be relatively free. So what you're letting go of is wanting and pushing away. What you're letting go of is tanha, which is the creation cause of dukkha, suffering, which is how and why we jump off the wheel of samsara somewhere between Vedana and citta. This asks nothing extraordinary of you other than to notice and be with it. That's noting. Unpleasant. 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 This is what it feels like to be unpleasant. Okay. And then just briefly, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is dhammas. Truths or categories of experience or um, 
you could say things that might happen. And it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a different category, meaning that we don't take the elements of the fourth foundation of mindfulness as objects of meditation the same way we do the first, second, and third foundation of mindfulness. My understanding of and my way of talking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness is that it occurs naturally. And we can and, and the invitation is to trust that. And it occurs naturally as the practice matures and our attention begins to widen. And our attention can widen with enough concentration, enough stability. And we begin to observe body, kaya, vedana, feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and chitta. So we begin to watch that whole movement of nama and rupa, mental and physical phenomena, coming and going. Certain body states give rise to certain mind states. Certain mind states give rise to certain body states. We have a particular reaction to Vedana. Wanting mind shows up. We notice the dukkha. And we watch. So, on some level, the fourth foundation of mindfulness and the insight derived of it has to do with cause and effect. We start to notice relationship. Okay, we start to notice relationship. And there are so many dhammas that we can become aware of, that we can know, that are listed in this category, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. For example, we can become fully aware of the Four Noble Truths. Experientially, directly, not as a <clears throat> sound philosophy that motivates us to practice, but uh, rather we can, from our direct experience of dukkha, its cause, tanha, in our moments also of alleviation, we verify the path to that alleviation. Not because someone told us, not because we believe the Buddha, but because we have some experience of it. Likewise, the three marks of existence, the three characteristics, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, some understanding about this me, this I, the nature of change and Nietzsche, uh, we have some understanding of how those three work, work together. The hindrances, the presence of them and the alleviation of them. Sometimes we notice the hindrances are very active. Greed, worry, fear, tiredness. Sometimes we notice they're gone. So the hindrances, because you remember I said chitta was like attitudes of mind, right? Hindrances show up in the third foundation of mindfulness, but they also show up, in, and this is why people get confused sometimes, one of the reasons why people get confused. But if you, if you look at a, a list of elements or phenomena to be experienced in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, you'll see the hindrances there as well. 
but you usually see uh, wary, no wary. Laziness, no laziness. Right? So in the fourth foundation, this is sort of where things come together, in a way. Fourth foundation of mindfulness, the factors of awakening. This is just, this is just pointing out a law of nature. That's what the fourth, the fourth foundation is pointing out laws of nature. Sometimes there's worry, sometimes there's not, right? One of the most significant laws of nature that we become aware of is that as we become more and more secluded from the hindrances, those unhelpful, unwholesome mind states, we start to notice the natural arising of the awakening factors. Qualities that indicate a mind is more awake, which is to say less clinging, period. Mindfulness is stronger. There's a lot of curiosity and interest. We should talk about curiosity and interest more. We should learn how to cultivate it. Because disinterest blocks the development of the mind. Right? So this this interesting curiosity is the mind that is inclined towards solutions rather than problems. You know, you meet people like this. You know, like, you know, in situations, you you know, you're stressed out and you, you see, oh, there's six problems here, and they're just going, hmm, what do you think we should do? You know, and they're a little bit tickled by the opportunity to figure it out. It's a remarkable mind state. It's, its practical value is off the chart. It's so high in daily life and for learning meditation. You know, it actually can eliminate this whole I'm having a bad day on meditation retreat phenomena. It's just a day with a lot of unpleasant Vedana. Why, I wonder. Right, it's very curious. So now you're almost excited about your pain. <laughs> joy, from that comes joy, naturally. There is, a, there is a linear quality to this list, by the way. Joy certainly can be connected to a stable, concentrated mind, but it comes before stability here, before concentration. So if you start to feel the mind getting light and joyful, particularly if you're one of those people who thinks you don't deserve that, you don't want to do anything to compromise that because that's often going to come before a much more stable stage of concentration. And then the mind ultimately out of concentration will become radically equanimous. Very, very stable. Uh, equanimity can be uh, a mind state that we're drawing upon and tapping into moment by moment to meet pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. And it also 
uh, though not itself permanent, it's also a place or stage we can drop into in the practice uh, that uh, can have, until it doesn't have any longer, a self-sustaining nature. You can re- the mind can really uh, settle, stabilize, and be okay with things as they are. And that becomes a perceptual. That can become a perceptual lens. And there's a sense that everything is in its right place. Nothing is out of order. Everything is just as it should be. That's equanimity. So how do we how do we do this? What what sounds good, but how do we how do we do this? And so I want to review some of the techniques that uh, Sayada has given. Number one is the precepts. We chant them every day. Just taking care of the mind just taking care of the heart the best you can so that it is less disturbed, being good to oneself and being good to others. Um, On retreat, that's taking refuge in Sangha. It's working to the best of your ability uh, with form, Uh, really working with form. I think it was Adam last night, I was sort of hearing this tangentially, said to Saida in the car, like, what's different? from working with Western yogis and Burmese. And I think Sayadaw said something like, well, the Burmese really have a lot of reverence for form. You know, they really, they really like, they see the form of practice, whether it's the technique or the schedule or what's offered for food or the location or the, the conditions of retreat generally. And they just, they take the form and they say, okay, got it, thank you, let's do it. But he said like Westerners, they, you know, they they, sure, they want things to be a particular kind of way. They, they 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 seem to want to co-create the path to enlightenment <laughs> according to their needs and preferences. Interesting. The problem with that is that our needs and preferences have yet to wake us up. Can we just see that? Can we just see that? <clears throat> How often do we meditate? Do we come to the morning session? Do we do the nine, the nine o'clock session in Burma is the hardest session for me. And I've slept through those sessions. Don't let me fool you. But what is required to stretch ourselves and sit all day? I was leaving the monastery in the winter and um, I was looking for one of the the folks that work in the office and so, and so I went to the office and there was a young monk who spoke a little bit of English, not much and uh, there was no one else in the office but young monk sitting cross-legged like this on a chair, just like I am now, not on the floor and there was a little plastic chair like this high, like a little little kid's chair and he was sitting directly, at the, the little boy like three or three, four years old, max, maybe three years old, sitting right in front of the monk, not, not any farther away from this table. And I walked in and they were totally silent, just st- like kind of staring at each other. You know? and, I, and I said to the monk, I said, well, the monk asked me a question and, and figured out he had a little bit of English and, 
And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, I'm teaching him how to meditate. And so we started to talk about it a little bit. Um, and he said, by four years old, they will be able to sit in silence without a guided instruction for an hour and a half, no problem, nonstop. <laughs> and that was one of the most significant teachings that I've ever gotten in Burma. So what's, and what's happening there? Julia asked Sayadaw, Sayadaw also in the same car ride, I, I believe. Um, Sayadaw had responded to a, another question by talking about uh, the time they spend training young children to meditate. Uh, and, and he does at his monastery, they have special programs where lots and lots of young children will come and, and, and go and retreat. And Julia said something like, well, what do you do with the kids when they're bad? <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know how she framed the question. but And he said, oh, I just put them in a corner and tell them to meditate for an hour. You know, like, We're still learning how to meditate. These are, these are like, for an hour. These are five-year-olds. Go meditate for an hour. Saida encourages us to do some metta at the beginning of our practice period. So it's just a reminder if, if you've forgotten that. Uh, a minute of metta for everyone in the room, a minute of metta for everyone on the compound, and a minute of metta for all beings. I'm cautious about advice, but if there's one I can give you, it falls into this category of technique, though Saida didn't say it explicitly. And that is continuity. Continuity is mentioned 21 times in the Satipatthana Sutta. For all four foundations, Kaya, Vedana, Chitta, and Dhamma. 21 times. This is one of the hard, has been one of the hardest teachings for me to comprehend and embody. And it is, as is often the case, probably the understanding that has changed my practice the most. Because I didn't take it literally. I said, yeah, I got it. You want me to practice a lot. <laughs> it's retreat. There's nothing else to do. Okay. <laughs> but if I could say one thing, it would be to take this as literally as possible. What might happen if you invested yourself fully in mindfulness in every single moment, such that as soon as the eyes start to open and you have this felt sense of not being asleep anymore, you note your mental state. Tired, happy, or peace, or maybe the body is sore, sore. You just note right away. And then as soon, bending, 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 touching, lifting, you start to get out of it. 
What if you took the teaching literally? I can remember reporting in an interview once on retreat that I had got up in the middle of night to go to the bathroom for all intents and purposes, half asleep. And I was shocked, and which is why I was talking about it in my interview. I remember I said to the teacher, I said, I just I just woke up out of sleep because I had to go to the bathroom. And, and the mind was just, I just know, I just, I know, I, at a certain point I became aware that while I was walking to the bathroom, the mind was noting everything. There was everything that was happening moment after moment after moment. So you start with the abdomen. So I just say, just, just sit down and notice the breathing. Or touching, touching, touching. Just notice that the body has a basic sense of weightiness or gravity or your hips are touching the floor or whatever it is. And then, whatever's most prominent. I was confused with Sayadar on a retreat once and I said, just, I just tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm noting the breath, I'm thinking, and then, you know, like, where do I put my attention? There's so much going on. And he said, just notice the breath. And then note whatever happens next. That's it. That's the instruction. And lastly, um, stay still, really, in Vipassana practice. If you can not move, let me say it differently. When you want to move, don't. Eventually you will have to. But not unlike the three-year-old who can sit still for an hour and a half, you can move through that first inclination to move, and maybe the second, and maybe the third, and maybe the fourth. The invitation is to put yourself in a situation where you can get closer to the stability that is available when you disrupt tanha. Those inclinations to move is the underlying inertia of craving. Don't make tanha stronger that will require you to stay. So stay still and slow down everything you do. If it takes you 20 minutes to walk from here to that room nearby where your soup is, so be it, right? So stay slow and stay still. And I'll leave you with a short section of a poem titled Now by uh, Robert Browning. Out of your whole life, give but a moment. All your life that has been gone before, all to come after it, so you ignore, so you make perfect the present.